As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners or odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is a true crime podcast, as the title suggests. So please consider this your warning, that it's not suitable for children, and it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast, so Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. Prisoners were coming down and there was a lot of chattering. It just, it just didn't feel right. Then Storm broke 
and Amali, they got the carving forks and they're stabbing her repeatedly, both of them crazy. I know it was them because I saw them. If you've ever asked yourself what kind of person makes a great prison guard, then this is the episode for you. Although you might find the answer unexpected. I know I did. Like so many before her, Sue Norman arrived in Australia having barely survived a childhood of cruelty and deprivation in the East End of London. Her adulthood hasn't been particularly easy either, but none of it has made her an angry or a hard person. It's definitely made her a fascinating person and I'm so glad she's written a book about her life called The Pimp and the Pork Sausage, which is available now. Susan joins us on Australian True Crime to talk about her incredible life so far, which includes witnessing a murder inside Brisbane's Boggo Road Jail and warning potential sex trafficking victims from the Scottish Highlands. We begin with Susan reminiscing about her first home, the room in which she spent her first years in London's East End with her mum. I actually found out later it was like a hostel for women. No men were allowed. So it just had one window, one door, had bed in front of the window, small bed on the bottom, a cooker, and then when another child come along, a cot. That was it. The most thing I remember is um, some Americans coming and picking me up and taking me out in a car. Didn't have as many in them days. This couple kept taking me out and um, we call him Bob the Sailor, but he's actually, we thought he was our dad, but he turned out not to be. So Bob was there one day and my mother wasn't and this couple came to pick me up, but I hid behind his legs saying I didn't want to go. Um, so I don't know how that stopped, but by talking to my mother years later, I found out that they were friends of the people that run the hostel. I don't know what stopped it. Maybe it was Bob. Not sure. I did ask my mother why she was giving me away and she said she couldn't look after the other two. So those Americans were coming for visits with a view to adopting you? Yeah, yeah. Just to tell, I don't know if it was adoption or just taking me because they were friends of the people that run the place. And Bob the Sailor, was he living there with you guys, even though men weren't supposed to be there? No, he wasn't living there. He was just seeing my mother. But unbeknownst to us, he had another family anyway. How long did he stick around in the family with you guys, with your family? On and off, on and off. He sort of moved into our next place, so he must have left his wife and kids. He moved in. My mother had another child, which was four by then. And then we got another place. He moved with us when I was nine. And we moved into Battersea in London. And it was there and not there. And then they were arguing and then he left. Then he went off with a neighbour. So he ended up with three families. (laughs) And my mother was quite an abusive person as well, you know, all the way along. I mean, when we lived in like a two-room place after the hostel, my mother was so, she was absolutely violent, you know. I mean, she smashed my head against Carol's, my sister. So we were playing on the lounge, and it's something you don't forget. We're playing on the lounge. She grabs our heads and smashed them together. Something happened one day with me and a friend, and her friend's mother came to the house and said, 
you know, oh, I just smacked my daughter and my mother didn't. She just sent me to the room. She goes, well, I'll go and smack mine too. So she come in and beat me. I was going to ask how she coped, in inverted commas, with the comings and goings of her partner and with four kids, but you've just answered that question, I think. Yes. When I was at school there, I was always in fights, always. And then outside of school as well, if one of my siblings got hurt, I used to go and beat the person up. So I was always in fights. Now, as an older person now, I look back and see why did I do it? And I believe it was control. I didn't have it at home. So I had control outside. Also, you were it was modelling. You were taught that that was a way to deal with conflict and, you know, that was a way to deal with other people. Yes, correct. Yes. So I wasn't allowed in high school in a mixed school. I weren't allowed to go to a mixed school because I always fought with boys. I don't know why, but I did. And so I went into an all-girls school and sort of settled me a little bit until one big girl slapped me around the face. I thought, mm, she's too big to hit back. So when we were going in, it was a massive school. And as we were going down the stairs, she was in front of me, so I pushed her down the stairs. She didn't come at me again. <laughs> but I did start to calm down a bit then. Um, I didn't do well in school at all. Were you teased about your problems at school? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, in, in primary school, I was at the back, left-hand side. I was just left because I could not keep up with the class. You just put it at the back, you're less of a problem, so no one really cares. Now, because of the fighting, my desk was actually put outside the headmaster's office and I was isolated there. And you fall further and further behind oh, in your schoolwork. Oh, of course, work. of course. Well, there was no behind. I just couldn't do it. Just could not do it. But when I went to high school, I had an English teacher that really put some time into me. And, um, yeah, I started learning to read. And it was through that reading that I found out, like, Bob the Sailor was not our, my dad. Mm. Because I went into the um, kitchen, you know, and everyone's got the third drawer down with their stuff. And I found a piece of paper and I actually could read it. My mother probably never worried about it because I couldn't read anyway. I read it and it said, you know, it was my father wishing to have access to see me and it was from the corpse. That's when we realised he weren't our dad. Did you feel at that time how much power the knowledge had given you or the ability to read, how that had changed your life? Oh, yes, it did. Yeah. Yes, it did. The only thing was I didn't really get much chance to sort of read because by the time I was 15, my mum chucked me out anyway. So what happened there, she didn't even talk to me about anything. I did not realise really I was pregnant. It just didn't comprehend it because I think in them days you're sort of young, you're younger, kids are more smarter now than what they were back then. So I I ended up pregnant, just carried on life as usual. My mother says we're going to the hospital for appointment. I didn't know what for. 
She took me there. I went in. There was three blokes in front of a desk, and he, they said, oh, you come for an abortion? And I go, no. Didn't know what the appointment was for. I've come out. My mum goes, oh, you're making the appointment then. That's the first word she ever said. And I went, no. She Then I saw her turn angry, and when we were on the bus, there's moments like that you just know exactly where you're sitting and everything. And she says, when we get home, you're out. And I had to go upstairs. I got my things and left. I was sad I couldn't take my teddy. Oh, such a little girl. And I, and I was too. I was quite naive. So I'm on the street. It was cold, winter. So I made my way over to where the boyfriend was living at the time with his uncle who was renting out rooms. So we stayed there. He's the same age, isn't he, your boyfriend? One year older than me, exactly. Yeah, so he's a kid too. Oh, yes. So I stayed in a room there. I started going downhill very fast. Um, he used to just go out and he was a machinist. And um, I was just in a room starving. And he'd come home, we'd go to bed, he'd get up, go to work. I never ate. There was a great big lack of food and because he used to just eat while he was out. I just sort of had to go without. So eating was very sporadic then. We had to leave there, move to the more of the East End, and I was just jumping around from place to place in different apartments, whoever take us in. And what was he saying, you know, when he got home from work and you hadn't eaten all day? Oh, I don't didn't care. Didn't wasn't even on his radar. He never had much money anyway. Um, half the time I wondered if he did work. Then from going from one flat to the next flat down, um, then I went upstairs just to say hello, sort of thing. And this lady had the plate where I'd lived before. She had the police there, and because someone had robbed her place, and I was just standing there. And then that evening, police knocked on the door and took me away. And my boyfriend as well at the time. They wanted to charge us, but it was consensual. So the lady, police officer, she was very nice. But the man, he was horrible. He just says, oh, you know, was it worth it? You know, all this. And oh, God, I was, my face was burning red from embarrassment. And anyway, they took me in a car and they took me to a children's home. In the morning, you go down, it was a great, great big hall and like the staff are all at the end and then you eat and everything. So I stayed there for a while, but I was, I did actually get a job and I liked it because, you know, made me feel good and I loved it when the tea lady came round. Yeah, definitely. Know. I mean, I know the children's home would have been hideous, but at least you were fed. Oh, yeah. And yeah. it would have been warm. That's right. That's right. And um, when I, as I say, working, I was going to work and I wasn't feeling too good and I was passing out. So when I gave up the job, the children's home wasn't happy because I was playing board there. Oh, yeah. How pregnant were you by this stage? Six, seven months. Wow. So it's heavy. Yeah, you're heavily yeah. pregnant. Yeah. They said to me, look, you're either stay here till you're 18 
or get married. So what do you do? So we ended up having to get married. Apparently the, they went round to my mother's and she just said yes because she didn't care anyway. His father said no. So it actually went to court and it was a court's decision and they gave permission. So I ended up getting married and my wedding was in wedding reception was in the children's home. I remember still not eating very well. And um, I remember my sister one day she saw me and uh, she bought me some chips. And that was something. I walked to the hospital when I was in labor, had the baby, and that was absolutely horrific. No one there. Men don't stay. No. There was no one. So anyway, we went back to this uh, one-room place when I got out and um, went to the council, which is public housing, and they said you can get a place quicker if you move out of London, which we did. We were living in Wellingborough, which is near Northamptonshire. So we were living in this house and um, he just disappears all the time. Comes back when he feels like it. Goes down to London, sees his friend. In my head, I'm making excuses. Oh, he didn't have a teenage years, you know. But by then I'm pregnant again. And what happened, how he started pimping was his brother was doing it and his brother's older than him. So he started doing it. But I didn't realise until he goes up north with his friends. Then they came down to me before London. So they used to come in and all these girls used to come in. What the hell's going on, you know? So anyway, I find out that way. And a lot of the times when I've got them by themselves, because they pretend uh, my my husband was saying, oh, it's so-and-so's girlfriend, so-and-so's girlfriend. I actually told them what's going to happen. And I said, they're going to put you on the game. Some of them did say it to the boyfriends. So the boyfriends were really angry with me, but I didn't care. So they're sex trafficking essentially. They're bringing girls down from the yeah, country. Definitely, mainly Scotland. And then when you got to London, they go, oh, look, we haven't got no money. You know, you're going to need to do this, this and this. So that's how it sort of went. Some of them did run away, which I'm happy about. But he was a Muslim and I only ever bought pork sausages. My only revenge was to feed him pork sausages because <laughs> he was violent towards me. I used to get beaten up, mm. you know. I was pregnant with the second child, so what was I, 16? And it kicked me in the stomach or hit us with a leather belt, studs on it, you know, and I've got one behind me and then holding the other one, trying to protect her head, newborn, and he's beating us, you know. So I, my only revenge was that. God, how long, how long were you with this guy? 13 years. So what happened at 28? What? How were you able to come out here? Okay, yeah, how, how? At one stage I tried to commit suicide. I've passed out because he's broken through the bathroom door where I've locked it. And I remember him coming in, but then I was out of it. 
So apparently they bundled me in a car on the back seat and I've ended up on the floor, rolled on the floor, taking me to the hospital. Anyway, he's made sure I leave because I was, you know, they wanted me to stay, but he's discharged me. So I started talking to my sister who sent a letter because my mother left England when I was pregnant with the second one, 16. So she left England. For where? Australia. So she immigrated. So I have no family at all. And I was isolated, alone, and not doing very well. She remarried, and they were going to come over for a holiday. Now, there was no hugs or anything like that at the airport. It was just hello. So they took us on like a little holiday, you know, around and everything, because I had three children by then. And they said, why don't you immigrate to Australia? Now, I looked at my husband and I said, no. And he said, yes, because whatever I say, he's going to do the opposite. I'd worked him out. So I've said no. And because of that, I knew he'd say he'd do it. It all went ahead, sold up everything, came to Australia. And I knew from years of looking out that kitchen window, thinking I'm going to be free one day. I'm going to be free. So we are on the plane. I go, oh my God, I've made it. I've made it. But we stayed with my mother. My husband at the time was still violent towards me. And it's starting to show with other people too because we're at a barbie and it's going to smash a bottle over my head. So he didn't like it here. So he took off with two children. He went back home with the youngest and the eldest. So a 12-year-old and a 3-year-old. Left me with the 11-year-old. That was in 83. How much notice did you have that he was going to take two kids? I mean, did he... Did he say he was taking them for good or no, how did that no, happen? No, 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 no. He was taking them. He just took them. That was it. Just took them. I was devastated. I was throwing up all sorts. But anyway, so I was trying to plan how to go there and kidnap my children and bring them home. And I couldn't work it out. So I got a solicitor and I ended up going over there. I went to court. Took three years. So in 86, March 86, I was over there and they court said, well, the father's had them six years. You've only had them three, the youngest. He gets them. I came back and thought, well, I've got to get on with my life. Anyway, we ended up in, uh, my daughter and myself ended up with housing commission at Kingston. Where's that, Brisbane? Yep. So we move into this lovely housing commission, brand new, great. But I thought, okay, we got to better ourselves. So I was doing panel beating and um, it was hot, hard work. My daughter used to come home. She used to cook for when I got home from work. You know, she was really good. And um, after a sort of certain amount of time, my son arrives. He <gasps> was 17 oh. because the father could not cope with him so I've got the two children so he's still got the young one 
So I thought, all right, I've got to do better. So I went to be a prison officer. Yes, I love this. This is kind of where we come in, although obviously everything we've heard leads up to this. But also, I mean, you I know you hear this word a lot, but the resilience of you is so amazing. You know, a lot of us listening will be thinking, oh, God, I would have curled up in a ball so many times by this. But the way that you go, okay, well, this is what it is and I'm going to keep pushing forward is obviously so much of what you've told us already is what made you a great prison officer, obviously, don't you think? Yes, yes, it suited me down to the ground. Yeah, and Boggo Road where you went. I know. For those of us in Victoria, and we talk about Pentridge a lot on this show, it was very much like Pentridge in that it opened in the 1850s and didn't shut until the 1980s, and it didn't really change much in that time, did it? That's right, that's right. It was an old Victorian jail. Tell us about when you walked through the doors of Boggo Road. When I walked through the door, I was shitting myself. Yeah. (laughs) So I'd done the course for three months. I was scared and I was put with someone called Lynn and as she showed me around, I was getting wolf whistles from the prisoners. Female. Yeah. Right. So I was getting all these wolf whistles. Oh, God. And the actual Lynn says, this don't usually happen. And um, I was with her for a few weeks. She was a great teacher sort of thing. I think people were wary, oh, God, what good is she going to be? Because I was the smallest there. And I was always running for some reason. I liked to just keep running from block to block. The fights, they were interesting. They, Women are more sort of, men just punch. Women are more calculating. And they fight like a man. Wow, they can go it. But I used to love it because I used to just jump on their back, put my arm around their neck, put my hand up there. Up the nose, kind of grabbing the nose. That's it. It's instinct for me, really. And that's what I did. And then then I push them backwards and then take them to their cell. It wasn't just women, though, in Bogo. Was it it men and women? Because it's quite a small jail. It was, it, they had the men's section, but the women were at the back and there was only female officers. So the fights were fine. Break them up, just grab them, put your hand up the nose because that hurts. And the more you push, so I'm dragging them backwards, someone's opening the doors and I'm putting them in the cell. So even though you're little, it's taking me back to the girl at school, didn't matter the size of somebody or the ferocity or you weren't bothered by that. You had your technique and it always worked. Great. They just sort of underestimated a small person could do just as well as a big, burly woman. But I didn't get into that sort of, you know, the swearing, F in this, F in that. You know, I weren't into all that. Other prison officers were, so they ended up getting it back. But I said, well, you know, I'm not swearing at you. Don't swear at me. What do you want? And you're always watching. It was like a hierarchy thing as well with officers, not just prisoners. There is that pecking order with prisoners, not to sit in certain places. New ones sit at the back. The ones that have been there for a long time sit at the front watching TV. So I was in the rec room and I sit there and you could see the pecking order of the officers as well. So the ones that have been there a long time, you could see them in the office having fun, 
talking and everything. The new ones are actually out doing the looking, seeing what's going on. So you just felt like you're out of it. You're apart from them. So after a while, though, when you got more officers coming in, I found that your pecking order went up. After the break on Australian true crime, our guest today, Susan Norman, whose book is called The Pimp and the Pork Sausage, tells us about the day she was caught up in what is still the only murder of a female inmate in an Australian prison. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Debbie Dick was ambushed by fellow inmates in Bogo Road in 1990. Tell us what you remember of that. I was on shift the night before up in one of the other blocks. And prisoners were coming down and there was a lot of chattering. It just, it just didn't feel right. I was just watching them go down to maximum security. Well, the next day, my shift was in maximum security. Start at six in the morning. Anyway, by lunchtime, the officers go up to have lunch and uh, you have a skeleton crew watch. The prisoners have lunch. So there was three of us. So there was me and another girl just watching them have their lunch and putting it away, you know, cleaning up. And while they were eating, I noticed they kept turning around looking at us. And I ended up saying to the other officer, they keep staring at us, something weird's going on, you know. So anyway, everything got cleaned up and we're still just walking around just after that because they all go to sort of relax and everything. I was in the long corridor and there's slats and Deborah was sitting looking at the slats out to the garden. I was at the end of that corridor. It's pretty wide. Then Stormbrook came and Amale 
they started, she was sitting on a chair, they got the carving forks and they're stabbing her repeatedly, both of them crazy. I was there, they were doing it, I saw it, said hit the alarm because there was an officer, there was three of us, one officer hit the alarm. So as she's going down, I've run up the passage up there. I didn't go seeing to Deborah. I've jumped over the chair. I've gone into the where they have their meal because I'm fo- I'm running after these two girls. So I've run after them. I've gone through the kitchen, which is in the middle, and I'm standing between the kitchen and the rec room where all the other prisoners are just standing like that, you know, just dead still. And Storm and Amali are just standing there staring at me. I know it was them because I saw them. But they're just standing there. They had nothing in their hands. And I thought, where the hell did they put them thoughts? So anyway, just stepped back in the kitchen, had a quick look, and I saw them. Just before they've run through that archway, the door, They've thrown the forks under a metal drawer. And I don't think, well, they never had time to get rid of them because I was after them. So they've just thrown it. So I thought, I'm not touching them. I'll stand in front of them. So I stood in front of these forks, two carving forks. They were bent from the ferocity of it. Then Amali, understanding front, Amali's come in to the kitchen and she starts pacing up and down. She's looking out of the window at the slats where Deborah's on the floor. The officers are looking after Deborah. So Amali's pacing up and down, hoping I'll move and they get the weapons back. I don't know. But I stayed there till the police came. How long was that? That's quite a while. Yeah. I mean, first of all, we had men come down from the male division because we don't usually have men there. So the men have come down. There was a few officers that come into the kitchen and I'm just standing there and I haven't told anyone what I, why I'm standing there. One bloke started going through the bin. I said, get it. I told him, stop, get out because they shouldn't be touching stuff. So he's gone. So I'm still left there alone. And because the men have come down, then all the prisoners were locked up. So there was a lockdown then. Then I could move. And I stayed there till the police came anyway. I can't imagine the tension. You've described it really well because you're facing off with how many prisoners and Amali's like a caged lion. She was. Yeah, the pacing up and down. I mean, she wanted them weapons back. Well, the adrenaline, I mean, she's, she knows she's just attacked someone. She's tried to kill someone. She doesn't know if she's been successful yet. What a tense, tense standoff. Yeah. Anyway, Deborah was taken away. Then the police were there and then they started, like, interviewing people. When um, the other officer that was with me watching on the have lunch, we were being interviewed and an Another officer came in and whispered in his ear that Deborah just died. Me and Annette just looked at each other and, yeah, Annette Annette really suffered a bit. 
you know, she weren't coping too well. Amali and Stormbrook, they needed to be locked up, more secure, into the male division. They asked me to take them. I shouldn't have taken them. I should have been separate from them because I've just seen them murder someone. So they've asked me to go there with them. So I've gone, put them in the prison van, taken them to the male division, taken them into the medical centre. Now in the medical centre there, they've got two separate cells that's got nothing in it that can hurt themselves. So they've been put in two separate cells. That's fine. And then Storm asked me for a pen. Mm. Guess what? I gave it to her. Silly, silly me. So then I heard a noise from Amali's cell, screaming that she's done something. Then me and another male officer have gone to look for Storm. She's cut herself with the pen. She's opened up a vein and she's spurting everywhere. So we've opened up. I'm standing there in the blood. He's trying to stop it. And I'm saying, I'm not touching that. She's got hep C. Anyway, they've pulled her out into the more of a reception area. I've sat on a bench swinging my legs. Thinking, well, I don't care. I've just seen her kill someone. Do you know what I mean? I'm there swinging my legs on the bench. Other officers are coming and they're going, it's your fault. I go, yep. Anyway, she is dying. They do save her, take her to hospital. By this time, it's 10 o'clock at night. I mean, I started 6 o'clock that morning. Yeah, and you've witnessed a murder in, in between. And the worst part was to come was to my, write a report. Oh, I panicked. The lovely prison officer that was there, the male, he did his and then he helped me with mine. A lot of officers were ringing me saying, look, come home to my place. I'll look after you. I said, no, I want to go home to my kids. So I went home to my children and I went back to work the next day. I went back. There was some officers that left. They weren't even on shift, but they still left. So there was a lot of overtime coming up and I took everything I could. And no one prevented you. We hear this a lot in policing as well. Nobody at work in HR, I know it's this is a long time ago now, but nobody said, no, mate, what you need right now is a lot of counselling and yeah. this a traumatic event. You shouldn't well, be oh, at work more. Yeah, no such thing. Yeah. No such thing. Anyway, started doing a lot of work and all that. They started bringing male officers into the prison because of the violence. That changed the whole atmosphere of the jail. It was strange, but it was a, in a good way. In a good way, they did change things. And um, someone I'd met on the course was actually come from Waco. He came to the course and six years later, I ended up marrying him. Oh, my God. I know. Ah. The other thing you've raised is the way people who are illiterate or with literacy problems get through life. You know, just just constantly sort of panicking about moments where things like this pop up. I now have to write a report and, you know, getting help from other people because a lot of people in the prison system live this way, don't they? Oh, they do. They do. 
And I met prisoners and they've come and have gone, you know, the ones that keep coming back. And I met one where she couldn't even read if she went to the supermarket. She can't read labels and everything. And so instead of waiting for the system to get to her, I made sure she got into literacy in the jail. You know, I, I would advocate for that all the time to get them into that class. Yeah, because a lot of people just carry so much shame about it. Oh, it's terrible. I was so ashamed of it. Now I, I'm not. I mean, to do the exam, to get into jail, it's a big table, loads of people. So I literally have my head down and I could copy off of everybody. I copied off of everyone. I could do that and I could read upside down, sideways, whatever. I copied. I did either the working out on the side, what people did, especially in the maths part, see that I could work out. I copied them too. But I didn't copy off one person in case they're wrong. I copied off all of them. I thought the mad skills you develop to work around literacy. It's amazing. I know. But you also, you left the prison sector because of PTSD, right? Because Oh, God, yeah, that was yeah. bad. Yeah, I did, I did. I did. couldn't even find my way in the house. I'd be walking up knowing I was going to the toilet, then stop and not knowing where it was. And like a lot of coppers talk to us about, you know, it, it didn't happen suddenly after the murder for you, right? Oh, no, no. That's right. It took a long time. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm a delayed reaction person anyway. So, yeah, it took a long time. In a way, I sort of blamed my husband that I was caught, we were courting because he softened me. Yeah. I mean, I'm still the same person, but I became more vulnerable in the jail because once I was at that prison gate, that's it. I changed. And it started to interfere. My home life became, it started to cross over, whereas I kept them completely separate. And I sort of blame him for that. Like he opened up your emotional side? Yes, yes, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that happened. So I think I still would have been there if it weren't for Robert. Yeah, but maybe you, you know, would have been closed off emotionally too. So that's right, yeah. But also, you know, because you both were working, went on to work in the disability sector, right? Because you saw it was needed. You saw you went and worked in the sector and went, okay, there's a big hole here. We know there are many, many holes in the disability sector. The disability part is because my husband got out of the jail as well. And then he decided to go to TAFE to do a welfare course. So when he rang me up to tell me that, I said, put my name down too. He was so shocked because I'm the stable one that brings in the money, that pays the bills. So I ended up going to TAFE. Absolutely loved it. Sitting at a desk learning. I didn't learn too much. <laughs> He'd done all my exams, but the teachers knew that. But I still learned things. I still loved that process of sitting there and listening. And and. You obviously had a genuine passion for the disability sector, for people with disabilities. Looking back, how many people do you think in Bogo Road had disabilities that were undiagnosed? Oh, plenty, plenty. Mm. Yeah, there was a lot of mental problems in jail. There was one lady that did try to hang herself and I was holding on to her. Oh. 
someone else got her down. I ended up meeting her years later in the mental health sector. Now, my son spent 13 years there. Looking back, I think he had it when he was young because, uh, you know, when he was about 12, he tried to strangle me um, and he's done other things since. So to went, before he went to Wollaston Park, he actually was on the verge of dying because he slit his throat with his windpipe hanging out oh. and then stabbed himself eight times in the torso, plus he stabbed his eye. But at the time, they don't feel it because they're in such a psychosis, they do not feel that pain. And the phone call I got from the PA hospital was, I don't know, I was working in the disabilities then, and they said, we don't know if you're going, we're going to save him. They did save him. That's the way things are. You know, you just got to get on day by day. And, I mean, I'm a really positive person. I know, I can hear that. Amazing. And I know from another interview that I heard with you, um, with Sophie Formica, who's a fabulous woman, um, a Brisbane interview that you you lost your business uh, to your yeah, daughter. I did. Which is another thing that most of us would curl up in a ball over. And so is that relationship, has that been mended or you're still not? No, no, no. No, no. it's not mended at all. So which daughter was this, the eldest? Youngest. Or the, the youngest. So the dynamics are, are unfathomable, you know, between all of you. And yet again, here you are, a happy person, a positive person. And so now after that happened to you at that stage in your life, after you'd built this business at that stage in your life and then lost it, you're now, you've written a book, yeah. this, this girl who couldn't read at 14, 15, and you're now on the speaker's circuit because, oh, God, if you, came, if you were speaking anywhere near me, I'd be there, I tell you what, <laughs> front row, because I've turned 50 this year and I, there are many times where I think I just don't have the energy today. But you, yeah, you have so much energy. Oh, I do. I've been sport this morning. I played pickleball. <laughs> I don't even know what that is, woman. <laughs> Two hours of that. Oh, gosh. I'm a happy person and that's what positive. You've got to keep positive. And I thought, and, and like my sister at the time, and I said to her, you know, if she starts whinging and moaning, I go, be a nice old lady. Your mum only passed away last year and yes. you still had a relationship with her. I know. And I don't know why, but it was the right thing to do because she was at the point where, all right, she was anemic. I says, why are you anemic? She says, because I can't afford the meat. So I used to buy her the big rump things, you know, so she can cut it up and do that. So though, I helped out where I could right up until she died. But it's the right thing to do. I know she was not nice to me and she knows it. Yeah, you're a marvel. You're an absolute marvel, Susan. You're one of those great people who you personify the positives that can come out of childhood oh, trauma. Very much so. Very much so. Thank you to our guest today, Susan Norman. Her book is called The Pimp and the Pork Sausage. And there's a link in the show notes to this episode to help you buy your copy. If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800 Respect on 1800 737 732 or 1800respect.org.au.
Indigenous Australians can contact 13 Yarn on 13 9276 or 13yarn.org.au. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.